Welcome to the Perennials Podcast Book Club. I'm Victoria Russell, and you're listening to Chapter 27 of Anne of Green Gables by L. M. Montgomery. Chapter 27 Vanity and Vexation of Spirit Marilla, walking home one late April evening from an aid meeting, realized that the winter was over and gone with the thrill of delight that spring never fails to bring to the oldest and saddest as well as to the youngest and merriest. Marilla was not given to subjective analysis of her thoughts and feelings. She probably imagined that she was thinking about the aides and their missionary box, and the new carpet for the vestry room, but under these reflections was a harmonious consciousness of red fields smoking into pale purpley mists in the declining sun, of long, sharp-pointed fir shadows falling over the meadow beyond the brook, of still, crimson-budded maples around a mirror-like wood pool, of awakening in the world and a stir of hidden pulses under the gray sod. The spring was abroad in the land, and Marilla's sober, middle-aged step was lighter and swifter because of its deep, primal gladness. Her eyes dwelt affectionately on green gables, peering through its network of trees and reflecting the sunlight back from its windows in several little coruscations of glory. Marilla, as she picked her steps along the damp lane, thought that it was really a satisfaction to know that she was going home to a briskly snapping wood fire and a table nicely spread for tea, instead of to the cold comfort of old aid meeting evenings before Anne had come to Green Gables. Consequently, when Marilla entered her kitchen and found the fire black out, with no sign of Anne anywhere, she felt justly disappointed and irritated. She had told Anne to be sure and have tea ready at five o'clock, but now she must hurry to take off her second-best dress and prepare the meal herself against Matthew's return from plowing. "'I'll settle Miss Anne when she comes home,' said Marilla grimly, as she shaved up kindlings with a carving knife, and with more vim than was strictly necessary. Matthew had come in and was waiting patiently for his tea in his corner. "'She's gadding off somewhere with Diana, writing stories or practicing dialogues or some such tomfoolery, and never thinking once about the time or her duties. She's just got to be pulled up short and sudden on this sort of thing. I don't care if Mrs. Allen does say she's the brightest and sweetest child she ever knew. She may be bright and sweet enough, but her head is full of nonsense, and there's never any knowing what shape it'll break out in next. Just as soon as she grows out of one freak, she takes up with another. But there, here I am saying the very thing I was so riled with Rachel Lynde for saying at the aid today.' I was real glad when Mrs. Allen spoke up for Anne, for if she hadn't, I know I'd have said something too sharp to Rachel before everybody. Anne's got plenty of faults, goodness knows, and far be it from me to deny it, but I'm bringing her up and not Rachel Lynde, who'd pick faults in the angel Gabriel himself if he lived in Avonlea. Just the same, Anne has no business to leave the house like this when I told her she was to stay home this afternoon and look after things. I must say, with all her faults, I never found her disobedient or untrustworthy before, and I'm real sorry to find her so now. Well, now, I don't know said Matthew, who, being patient and wise and, above all, hungry, had deemed it best to let Marilla talk her wrath out unhindered, having learned by experience that she got through with whatever work was on hand much quicker if not delayed by untimely argument. Perhaps you're judging her too hasty, Marilla. Don't call her untrustworthy until you're sure she has disobeyed you. Maybe it can all be explained. Anne's a great hand at explaining. She's not here when I told her to stay retorted Marilla. I reckon she'll find it hard to explain that to my satisfaction. Of course I knew you'd take her part, Matthew, but I'm bringing her up, not you. It was dark when supper was ready, and still no sign of Anne coming hurriedly over the log bridge or up Lover's Lane, breathless and repentant with a sense of neglected duties. Marilla washed and put away the dishes grimly. 
Then, wanting a candle to light her way down the cellar, she went up to the east gable for the one that generally stood on Anne's table. Lighting it, she turned around to see Anne herself lying on the bed, face downward among the pillows. "'Mercy on us!' said astonished Marilla. "'Have you been asleep, Anne?' "'No,' was the muffled reply. "'Are you sick, then?' demanded Marilla anxiously, going over to the bed. Anne cowered deeper into her pillows, as if desirous of hiding herself forever from mortal eyes. "'No, but please, Marilla, go away and don't look at me. I'm in the depths of despair, and I don't care who gets head in class or writes the best composition or sings in the Sunday school choir any more. Little things like that are of no importance now because I don't suppose I'll ever be able to go anywhere again. My career is closed. Please, Marilla, go away and don't look at me.' "'Did anyone ever hear the like?' the mystified Marilla wanted to know. "'Anne Shirley, whatever is the matter with you? What have you done? Get right up this minute and tell me. This minute, I say.' There, now, what is it? Anne had slid to the floor in despairing obedience. Look at my hair, Marilla, she whispered. Accordingly, Marilla lifted her candle and looked scrutinizingly at Anne's hair, flowing in heavy masses down her back. It certainly had a very strange appearance. Anne Shirley, what have you done to your hair? Why, it's green! Green it might be called if it were any earthly color. A queer, dull, bronzy green, with streaks here and there of the original red to heighten the ghastly effect. Never in all her life had Marilla seen anything so grotesque as Anne's hair at that moment. "'Yes, it's green,' moaned Anne. "'I thought nothing could be as bad as red hair, but now I know it's ten times worse to have green hair. Oh, Marilla, you little know how utterly wretched I am!' "'I little know how you got into this fix, but I mean to find out.' said Marilla. Come right down to the kitchen. It's too cold up here. And tell me just what you've done. I've been expecting something queer for some time. You haven't gotten to any scrape for over two months, and I was sure another one was due. Now then, what did you do to your hair? I dyed it. Dyed it? Dyed your hair? And surely, didn't you know it was a wicked thing to do? Yes, I knew it was a little wicked, admitted Anne. But I thought it was worthwhile to be a little wicked to get rid of red hair. I counted the cost, Marilla. Besides, I meant to be extra good in other ways to make up for it. Well, said Marilla sarcastically, if I'd decided it was worthwhile to dye my hair, I'd have dyed it a decent color at least. I wouldn't have dyed it green. But I didn't mean to dye it green, Marilla, protested Anne dejectedly. If I was wicked, I meant to be wicked to some purpose. He said it would turn my hair a beautiful raven black. He positively assured me that it would. How could I doubt his word, Marilla? I know what it feels like to have your word doubted. And Mrs. Allen says we should never suspect anyone of not telling us the truth unless we have proof that they're not. I have proof now. Green hair is proof enough for anybody. But I hadn't then, and I believed every word he said implicitly. Who said? Who are you talking about? the peddler that was here this afternoon. I bought the dye from him. Anne Shirley, how often have I told you never to let one of those Italians in the house? I don't believe in encouraging them to come around at all. Oh, I didn't let him in the house. I remembered what you told me and I went out, carefully shut the door and looked at his things on the step. Besides, he wasn't an Italian. He was a German Jew. He had a big box full of very interesting things, and he told me he was working hard to make enough money to bring his wife and children out from Germany. He spoke so feelingly about them that it touched my heart. I wanted to buy something from him to help him in such a worthy object. Then all at once I saw the bottle of hair dye. The peddler said it was warranted to dye any hair a beautiful raven black and wouldn't wash off. In a trice I saw myself with beautiful raven black hair and the temptation was irresistible. But the price of the bottle was 75 cents and I had only 50 cents left out of my chicken money. 
money. I think the peddler had a very kind heart, for he said that, seeing it was me, he'd sell it for fifty cents, and that was just giving it away. So I bought it, and as soon as he had gone, I came up here and applied it with an old hairbrush, as the direction said. I used up the whole bottle, and, oh, Marilla, when I saw the dreadful color it turned my hair, I repented of being wicked, I can tell you, and I've been repenting ever since. Well, I hope you'll repent to good purpose, said Marilla severely, and that you've got your eyes open to where your vanity has led you, Anne. Goodness knows what's to be done. I suppose the first thing is to give your hair a good washing and see if that will do any good. Accordingly, Anne washed her hair, scrubbing it vigorously with soap and water, but for all the difference it made she might as well have been scouring its original red. The peddler had certainly spoken the truth when he declared that the dye wouldn't wash off, however his veracity might be impeached in other respects. "'Oh, Marilla, what shall I do?' questioned Anne in tears. "'I can never live this down. People have pretty well forgotten my other mistakes, the liniment cake and setting Diana drunk and flying into a temper with Mrs. Lynde. But they'll never forget this. They will think I am not respectable. Oh, Marilla, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. That is poetry, but it is true. And oh, how Josie Pye will laugh. Marilla, I cannot face Josie Pye. I am the unhappiest girl in Prince Edward Island.' Anne's unhappiness continued for a week. During that time she went nowhere and shampooed her hair every day. Diana alone of outsiders knew the fatal secret, but she promised solemnly never to tell, and it may be stated here and now that she kept her word. At the end of the week Marilla said decidedly, "'It's no use, Anne. That is fast dye if ever there was any. Your hair must be cut off. There is no other way. You can't go out with it looking like that.' Anne's lips quivered, but she realized the bitter truth of Marilla's remarks. With a dismal sigh, she went for the scissors. "'Please cut it off at once, Marilla, and have it over. Oh, I feel that my heart is broken. This is such an unromantic affliction. The girls in books lose their hair in fevers or sell it to get money for some good deed, and I'm sure I wouldn't mind losing my hair in some such fashion half so much. But there's nothing comforting in having your hair cut off because you've dyed it a dreadful color, is there?' I'm going to weep all the time you're cutting it off, if it won't interfere. It seems such a tragic thing. Anne wept then, but later on, when she went upstairs and looked in the glass, she was calm with despair. Marilla had done her work thoroughly, and it had been necessary to shingle the hair as closely as possible. The result was not becoming to state the case as mildly as may be. Anne promptly turned her glass to the wall. I'll never, never look at myself again until my hair grows, she exclaimed passionately. Then she suddenly righted the glass. Yes, I will, too. I do penance for being wicked that way. I'll look at myself every time I come to my room and see how ugly I am, and I won't try to imagine it away, either. I never thought I was vain about my hair, of all things, but now I know I was, in spite of its being red, because it was so long and thick and curly. I expect something will happen to my nose next. Anne's clipped head made a sensation in school on the following Monday, but to her relief nobody guessed the real reason for it, not even Josie Pye, who, however, did not fail to inform Anne that she looked like a perfect scarecrow. "'I didn't say anything when Josie said that to me,' Anne confided that evening to Marilla, who was lying on the sofa after one of her headaches, "'because I thought it was part of my punishment and I ought to bear it patiently.' It's hard to be told you look like a scarecrow, and I wanted to say something back, but I didn't. I just swept her one scornful look, and then I forgave her, 
It makes you feel very virtuous when you forgive people, doesn't it? I mean to devote all my energies to being good after this, and I shall never try to be beautiful again. Of course it's better to be good. I know it is, but it's sometimes so hard to believe a thing even when you know it. I do really want to be good, Marilla, like you and Mrs. Allen and Miss Stacy, and grow up to be a credit to you. Diana says when my hair begins to grow to tie a black velvet ribbon around my head with a bow at one side. She says she thinks it will be very becoming. I will call it a snood. That sounds romantic. But am I talking too much, Marilla? Does it hurt your head? My head is better now. It was terrible bad this afternoon, though. These headaches of mine are getting worse and worse. I'll have to see a doctor about them. As for your chatter, I don't know that I mind it. I've got so used to it. Which was Marilla's way of saying that she liked to hear it. a sense of lightness in Marilla's mind that I feel like we haven't really gotten before in the narration when we've been in Marilla's perspective. You know, we get and we get insight into her thoughts, but there's something in this that's really nice in the beginning of the chapter. She's noticing spring and feeling kind of light and happy. I love the line about she probably imagined that she was thinking about, you know, the aid society and their collections or whatever. I, I like the idea that Montgomery is saying there's a certain awareness that we can have or not have about what we're thinking about or what we're reacting to. And she's kind of pointing to, you know, you have someone like Anne on the one hand who is so in touch with her thoughts and feelings, like she knows exactly what's going on inside of her at any given moment and then you have someone like Marilla who is so out of touch with those things that she imagines that she's thinking about something but really she is noticing spring and feeling glad and I also love the phrase of the primal gladness of spring anytime when Montgomery is describing nature and the landscape. It's just beautiful. I love those passages. And I love that we get this hint that Marilla does have a love for nature deep in her, like Anne does. She's just out of touch with these things, but it's there. It's all there. And I like that we get to see that a little bit at the beginning of the chapter. And even the way that she is looking at Green Gables with affection, and she's looking forward to walking inside to a nice fire and supper on the table and I think that's why she she takes it even harder when she walks in the door and Anne is nowhere to be found and there is no fire and there is no supper I think she would have been annoyed and irritated about that no matter what but knowing Marilla and knowing how difficult it is for her to rest in any sort of uh excitement you know, there, there's there's a vulnerability to excitement and Marilla is much more of a worrier, always prepared for the thing that's going to go wrong. So for her to be looking forward to something going right and then to be disappointed, I think, hits her even harder. And then she goes right into her old pattern of like, she's very annoyed, she's sharp with Matthew and thinking the worst of Anne and just like, you know... I thought I could trust her. She's not usually like this. And her mind just instantly goes to the worst case scenario. You know, she instantly goes to the catastrophe. 
And that's kind of her vice that comes out in this chapter. There's a couple of vices that arise in this chapter. We see in Marilla, we see her distrust and her severity and her distrust also in the form of xenophobia when she's talking to Anne about the peddler and she's saying, don't let Italians into the house. You know, it's a cringe moment of her xenophobia, which is a form of distrust, right? And worry and fear. And the way that she so quickly kind of turns on a dime to go from like, looking affectionately at Green Gables and looking forward to the evening she's anticipating and then being like, man, you can't trust Anne, you know, and just going off about her. And then we see, of course, Anne's vices that arise in this chapter, which are her vanity and how she can be a bit impulsive and succumb to temptation, even when she knows better. I love how she puts it at the end of the chapter when she says, it's hard to believe a thing sometimes, even when you know it. I think there's real truth to that. Like there is, there is intellectual knowing that can happen that sometimes precedes what you feel or what your like gut reaction is or your impulsive responses or, you know, whatever kind of patterned behavior you have. Like you can know intellectually that something might be a bad idea but there's another part of you that doesn't quite know it or else you wouldn't act on it you know um so again we kind of have this nugget of childlike wisdom from Anne being able to articulate this experience of like yes I know better but something in my bones doesn't know better (laughs) something is overriding that knowing And we know that it's very hard for people to change their beliefs. So even if someone understands a fact, you know, intellectually, changing what they believe about something is much deeper work. And I think that's what Anne is kind of encountering. Another pattern of Anne's that comes out is that when she is suffering the consequence of her action, she feels that much worse because, once again, it is the result of her own choice so just like when she broke her ankle and she was like oh this is like so much worse than if it hadn't been my own fault again she's suffering the humiliation of dyeing her hair green and it feels that much worse because it was her own action that made this happen it didn't have to happen she can't blame anybody else so again she's like sitting with that double layer of suffering so it's a, it's another pattern that comes out and I like how Montgomery shows uh shows Anne making the same mistakes more than once or having these patterns of behavior because that is how humans are like we all have things that we are going to grapple with in different ways over the course of our lives there isn't just like what we might see in other stories, particularly children's stories of learning a lesson once and then never making that mistake again. You know, like Anne really struggles with this vanity thing. And and even when she's putting the looking glass down and saying, you know, I'm never going to look at myself again until my hair grows out. And then immediately she's like, no, I'm going to make myself look in the mirror every single time I, I pass the mirror as punishment Again, I I talked about this much earlier in the book, but it's like hating on her appearance is kind of its own form of vanity because she's still obsessing over it. She's still like putting a lot of energy into it. So even even 
looking at herself in the mirror over and over in a punishing way is still kind of reinforcing the belief that she has that that is of deep, deep importance. Like the way that she looks, the way that her hair looks is so important that it can either be a crowning glory or it can be a deep cause for sorrow as opposed to maybe just a neutral thing, right? And I I understand it would be really hard if your hair was shorn off and a weird unearthly color that can almost be described as green. (laughs) Like that's really tough for anyone to deal with. But, you know, the obsession is like she still hasn't quite gotten the lesson because she's still obsessing. On the other hand, we see Matthew's virtues in this chapter. It's a pretty small moment, but when Marilla is going into her doom and gloom, he is he hears her he listens he understands like okay just I want to have my meal so I'm not going to interrupt it let her (laughs) say her piece but then he says you know let's let's wait and see let's find out what happened you know maybe she didn't disobey you he has patience and he has some wisdom and he is willing to withhold his judgment until he knows more about what happened Marilla is just so quick to want the certainty of being able to say she disobeyed me and I'm angry at her and she's not trustworthy like because it's just more comfortable to live in certainty but they are learning like bit by bit and it's very sweet at the end of the chapter we get this kind of troubling troubling news about Marilla having all these bad headaches but it's sweet when Anne asks if all of her talking is hurting her head and Marilla says that she's gotten used to it she doesn't scold her. She doesn't tell her to stop talking. That's her way of ever so slightly things are shifting in her. And she's finding her way to say that she likes to hear Anne's talking. Thank you so much for listening to the Perennials Podcast Book Club. I'm Victoria Russell. You've been listening to Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. And I hope you'll join me back here for Chapter 28. Take care. Take care.